Welcome to Conversation Mill. My name is Rebecca Dale and I am the host of the show. I have a passion for sharing how the creation of thriving local economies benefits us all. I'm fascinated by how we come together to form our communities on a macro and micro scale and how our histories and stories when shared can not only motivate and inspire, but can facilitate understanding. As our communities, large and small, bring back a more progressive Main Street, individuals are stepping out to pursue their passions and local leaders are pushing back against corporate greed. It's time to engage these community leaders and small business owners in conversation. What are the driving forces behind their courage and success and how can we continue to build communities that embrace diversity, support the local economy, and create a healthy ecosystem for the culture at large? Join us now in conversation. On this episode, sculptor Dale Zarilla sits down with me at his studio at Maui Tropical Plantation on Maui to give us an intimate look at his work through the stories he shares. Dale's sculptures reside throughout the world, including the Vatican, King Kamehameha Golf Course, Fairmont Kealani Maui, and in dozens of private art collections. Dale's storytelling is as captivating as his art. His life of carving and sculpting is a destiny fulfilled, as his connections to the historical figures and nature he sculpts always seems to come full circle, as you will hear in his stories. His heart, gentle spirit, and talent shine through in his conversation with us today, as they do in each of his works. Sitting down in conversation with him is always a pleasure, and it is a joy to share Dale's wisdom and talent with you today. You can view and purchase Dale's art on his website, dalezarilla.com, or Instagram at dalezarilla. But first, join us in conversation. So I wanted to start today by asking you about a statement on your website. And you have a quote um, from you that says, I love wood. It speaks to me with silence and in its depth. Can you, to the best of your ability, describe that feeling? Well, the process of the sculptor is so difficult to explain, but Michelangelo put it differently. He said, I saw the angel in the stone. I carved until I set her free. And that's exactly how it is. Um, I remember I had been sculpting for probably 10, 12 years to when it pieces started to speak. You, you see it in there. It just appears. And uh, it's a magic moment of the process because I've had pieces for 30 years, don't see a thing in it. And then you walk by one day and there it is. And it's astonishing. And I used to say, why didn't I see that before? And now I realize I can't waste any moments of my life trying to figure out why that is. It just is. And uh, so that's what I mean. In its silence, it speaks to you. It shows you. It reveals itself. Yeah. In its silence. And yeah. there's a, a picture of you sitting on a, a just gigantic piece of driftwood. Can you talk to us a little bit about 
where some of your pieces of wood have come from? Well, that's a very interesting, interesting story because it was the very first piece the hel this helicopter pilot um, brought me to. And uh, I got a call one day because I had my work in a, one of the most popular restaurants on the south side of the island, the Kihei Prime Rib House, uh, Prime Rib and Seafood House. And uh, a gentleman named Heinz Gerner owned it. He was a very well-known chef in the islands, and he had a number of restaurants. And he, I actually started waiting tables for him after f four years at the hotel waiting tables because he had so much artwork in his restaurant that I thought, hmm, you know, maybe I'll make a switch. And so I, I did. And then I kept saying to him, hey, Heinz, you need to come up to my house and see my studio. And uh, then this big wood wall sculpture came into the the restaurant. And I said, how much did you pay for that? And he said, $5,000. I said, Heinz, you got to come to my house. And so finally, the next day, he comes to my home and he looks at my studio and he says, well, first of all, I want you to call Bobby, his manager of his restaurant, and uh, let her know you're not going to wait tables anymore. And uh, he commissioned three pieces for $4,500 each. Wow. And uh, and then I said, well, what am I going to do when I'm done with that? He says, don't you worry. I said, I'll sell your art. And he went on to sell so much of my art, not making a penny. There are a number of people through the years that I've it's come back to me that they say they made my career. Well, they made it for money. Heinz Gerner was the one person that took me under his wing uh, stopped me waiting tables and uh and started selling my art and for nothing else other than his love of art and his uh soft spot for up-and-coming artist so this uh, helicopter pilot bought two of my works in his restaurant calls me the next day and says hey i know where you can get some wood come on up to my house he lived at the top of maui meadows bring your chainsaw i go up there and he introduces himself and uh he tells me that he has a degree in forestry from penn state and he'd been flying helicopters for over 20 years in the islands. And he's leading me out into his backyard. And there's this helicopter um, right behind the Kiavis there, Kiavi trees. And he said, hop in. There's some driftwood I've never identified. Let's go check that out first. But there's so much wood out there. And that led into 16 years of gathering wood. And that first piece was on the backside of Haleakala, Kahikinui, middle of nowhere, up on the lava, this giant mahogany tree. Wow. And come to find out there were several on Koho'olave. There was, there's one down at Kalapapa. There was one in Kahakaloa here that my friend Bruce Turnbull had gotten. And we surmised way back, because like the one in Kalapapa, it's so far up on the beach, we figure the 46 tsunami brought it up there. So pre-46, wow. a barge off the coast of South America or something, got hit by a storm. All these logs got loose, and they got scattered in the islands. And, uh, and that's why driftwood is wonderful, because uh, it's like going to the beach, and you s I bring a tool, and I'll take a little chip, and what's underneath sometimes is a gem. And that, that piece that you're specifically talking about has... How long do you think that floated in the ocean before being washed up? I mean, it could be I, I've pondered years and that. years. Yes. I was down at Kalapapa combing the beach there because no one gets to go down there. It's such a closed little community. Yeah. And I found a piece of redwood driftwood 
that came from the Pacific Northwest. Who knows when it ended up on that beach, how long it was out there in the ocean, but there's so much driftwood and debris in the oceans that uh, you never know. Um, but boy, if it could actually speak, you know. Yeah. I, I remember found I found a piece of uh, curly koa driftwood uh, at Kalapapa, and I did this beautiful face of Christ in it. And uh, Archbishop Gomez came to my home for dinner when I was working on the Father Damien wood sculpture, and he came into my studio, and he went right to that. And... Uh, and so I gave it to him right there. And he said, oh, I'll find a nice place in my cathedral for this. <laughs> so I wonder where he put it. But little special things. It's like finding, it really is finding a gem. Mm -hmm. It's one of my favorite things is gathering. That's why the the Kahuna La'au Lapa'au, the healer sculpture at the Frank Lloyd Wright building, um, was uh, the vision came easily because I, it came to me that the, his favorite thing must have been gathering what he needed, the plants and berries and roots mm -hmm. and things to heal people with. Mm -hmm. And uh, gathering is one of my favorite things, too. But now I've looked at what all the wood, like yesterday I got a text saying, Dale, are you interested in any monkey pod trees? And I said, well, I would say yes, but I've, I've evaluated my wood supply, and I haven't been up for about 30 years, and I'm 61, so I've been doing the math. Thank you anyway. <laughs> You're tapped out. Yeah. What has been your favorite piece from the driftwood that you've collected? Wow. You know... From driftwood, it has to be that beautiful face of Christ out of Curly Koa that I gave to Archbishop Gomez. There have been many. There's another piece of Curly Koa I found in Kipahulu that's in the home of a, one of my biggest supporters and collectors are the Clyde family. Dennis was the scientist that invented how to make insulin in a laboratory. Oh, yeah. And uh, they have a home uh, in California right near the airport. And I stay there, but they're here permanently, so no one uses the house. So I get to go visit my, this art collection of mine. Oh, I uh, love that. And I, when I see a piece, it could be from 40 years ago, it all comes back to me what was going on at that time, mm -hmm. finding the piece, sculpting it. And some of them were through very difficult times, so it really brings me back to moments. And it, but if you said to me, do you remember this piece or that piece? Ah, vaguely, but boy, when I see it, the visual brings back um, those unbelievable memories. Going back, when did you first start sculpting? Um, my brother and I had a father figure, because when um, I was six, my brother was eight, when uh, my our dad passed away. And then when I was like maybe uh, 12, going on 13, this race car driver in our hometown became a father figure. Took us, we went to the racetrack every week. And uh, it was really, um, so when I remember in woodshop class, shortly after that, I saw a set of carving tools in the bottom drawer of my teacher, Mr. Morehouse. And I said, Mr. Morehouse, um, could I do a wood carving? Because I, I didn't like straight lines. Uh -huh. and, he, and 
And so he said, sure. And so I carved into a piece of wood this car for Ed Flemke, who was uh, in the racing world. He was an icon. And, uh, and when I gave it to him, he said, you stick with this kid. It's going to take you somewhere. Because Eddie was a great mentor to a lot of the great racers in history in NASCAR. And so I knew when he said something, people listened. Because he, he never minced words, and he was um, an incredible individual. And so uh, it was that race car. And he started showing all the others, other racers. They started buying them. You know, Jeff Bowden. A lot of my heroes growing up at the... Yeah. What was your first commissioned piece the first real commission was the when i was 17 <clears throat> my hometown church was building a new church saint dominic's church and father garrity um had called and talked to my mom because he heard there was a woodcarver in the town and uh he wanted to ask if i would carve the crucifix above the altar eight and a half feet and my mom being a very conservative Polish, did not tell me because she did not, she knew I would say yes, but she didn't know if I could do it. And it would embarrass, right. you know, um, I, I, she, I don't think she wanted the embarrassment. <laughs> but anyway, I was... How, uh, the, sorry to interrupt you, but how did the father find out From you uh, were Ralph Riccio, who owned a men's store, had uh, he had bought one of my carvings from the Apple Harvest Festival booth I had. Okay, you know? okay. So, but anyway, uh, I was working part time for a company. We would clean homes that had like a stove fire uh, mm -hmm. in the kitchen, and uh, an old German man. I was cleaning his house, and he was retired, and he carved, and he carved a crucifix. Yeah, I saw a crucifix carved, in his, mm -hmm. and I said, wow, I, I need to do a crucifix. So I went home, and I said to my mom, I need to do carve a crucifix. And she said, why did you say that? And I said, well, I, and I told her. And she said, Dale, a couple of weeks ago, Father Garrity called. You know, I'll get you his number. Call him. Because it was like God was saying, you know, she was getting struck by lightning. <laughs> you know, I'm not a hugely religious person, but very spiritual because my I grew up in the church. Mm -hmm. And losing my dad at six, the comfort of that sure. had a huge. And then being creative, the statuary, mm -hmm. the stories they told. And when my dad passed away, his first cousin came from Belgium to for the funeral. And uh, my Father's first cousin was head of the oldest seminary school in the world in Leuven, Belgium at the time, in the late 60s, early 70s. And ironically, that's where Damien came from. You know, there's a full circle here that's so unbelievable. Because uh, the day before I moved to Hawaii, I went to see Al because he was at a church in Connecticut. I said, I'm moving to Hawaii, Al, because he's been like a father to this day. And he, uh, he said, you're going to hear about this man named Father Damien. I honored his life of self-sacrifice so much I would go to his tomb right down the street from the mm -hmm. seminary to say my prayers and meditations once a week. And uh, so he planted that seed. I had already been doing, because after I did the crucifix for St. Dominic's, they ordered the rest of the statuary. Oh, wow. And then when I was 23, I moved here. I was, uh, that was my next question is what, what then brought you out to Hawaii? Because that's quite,
quite a shift oh my from Connecticut to yeah. Maui. You know, my biggest um, – there is only one nightmare I have, and that's not having moved here 38 years ago. Because what would my life have been? Mm. Um, and so I had a um, – I knew this family in the town next to me. There was a brother that was my age, and an older brother, two older brothers, lived on, uh, lived here back in 1984 and 5. And so, uh, <clears throat> and Jeff Swenton, he was a great architect. He studied at Notre Dame and in Florence architecture. And uh, then he was working in Boston. I remember going up to visit him. He, I got an architectural tour of Boston from him, but he encouraged me in my art. And so then he moved to Hawaii and because he was hired to be the chief architect of a brand new city. And now that city is called Kapolei wow. on Oahu. Wow. He was hired by uh, the Campbell Estates. Okay. And uh, rarely do you get a chance to design a new city unless it's the Middle East these days. Sure. And, uh, and so Jeff was home Christmas 1984 with his brother, other brother that lived here that built, builds the built a bunch of beautiful homes in Waylo. And uh, and he said, Dale, you need to move to Maui. Mm -hmm. It's the place for you. I'm going to need statuary for the town, for the city. Yeah. You know, there's going to be a town hall. We're going to have parks. We're going to have this and that. And uh, less than a month later, I was here. Wow. Yeah. He lived on Maui, but commuted to Oahu. So let's go back a little bit and talk about, you started to talk about it a little bit, but the role that the church or spirituality or even just the saints of the church have played in your creative process or in your art? Mm -hmm. Well, <clears throat> having Al, my father's first cousin, be a, such a wonderful father figure to me, it, it gave me a healthy respect of the church. Of course, after all these years and knowing uh, some of the things that have gone wrong, Mm -hmm. um, I know people focus on it as a Catholic thing, but it goes across the board with any positions of power. It's going to be abused. Oh my gosh, freedom um, was inspired by some serious abuse. And, uh, and that was Mormon. Um, and so you really... Uh, but I, I had a healthy respect growing up as an altar boy in the church... And then hearing the stories of the different saints, I took uh, one of my middle names is uh, Francis after St. Francis and the love of animals because I grew up on a farm and, and uh, always loved animals and nature. The, I used to go with my mom every week and if not with my mom, with my grandparents. Mm. And um, that was the Polish, grand, Polish side of the family. And they were dairy farmers. And it was my grandmother that um, I saw her deep religious values coupled with her um, understanding of nature. Um, and she had the most profound effect on my life because after my dad passed away, I spent so much time with uh, especially her and those walks on the farm and gathering the blueberries and gathering the, all the different berries, gathering the mushrooms. Uh, she knew all the plants and trees and, and those walks were 
um, learning experiences, every single one of them. That's how the vision came for the healer sculpture um, at the Frank Lloyd Wright building. The healer, he told me how his grandmother taught him about all the different plants and everything. And I thought about my grandmother, all of those, she taught me about the plants and on our walks. And that's how uh, I gained that vision of, that must have been the healer's favorite thing is gathering. And uh, I remember my cousin Al though, when I was uh, probably 15, um, he would pick me up and we'd, you know, go, he'd take me on vacation with him to the, we'd go to the beach, we'd go to place, but he knew of this uh, gentleman that ran an orphanage or, uh, or a home for troubled kids. Mm. And he, the guy was a woodcarver. He was a big guy with a beard. And he, uh, he brought me over to his shop cause he was carving this big crucifix. And that was when I was working on my crucifix. And, uh, and so to then be creating, <clears throat> you know, you put so many of your own feelings, like the crucifix was, you know, you can put your own pain mm. into that and suffering. But then, then there's a, a resurrection that is rising above, you know, all those emotions. Um, and that's why I've become grateful for all the highs and lows in my life, because mm. it's I'm convinced you can only have the highest of highs if you have experienced the lowest of lows. You're only going to have the same correlation. You're only capable of the same correlation. Mm -hmm. You know, the de depths of despair, you'll know joy to the same extent. I think it's in Cahill Gibran's The Prophet, where the prophet talks about joy and sorrow. And I don't remember the exact quote off the top of my head, but them being the flip side of the other the yin and yang. Yeah. yeah and you don't know one I, th I think it's in reference to you don't know one fully mm -hmm. without the other right and so you have to experience both and also having faith blind faith because mm. sometimes you have to you have to and um that's one of the things, like in my art, I always feel it's going to come out the way it's supposed to. So I don't worry about it. I know artists that pre-plan everything right to the end. and they, they But I also see them very disappointed in life. Mm. If it doesn't turn out the exact ways they want. Um, allow things to happen. Um, it, you know, it was the same thing in raising my daughter. You know, that's... You do your absolute best, and you got to have some faith in the future that all those little seeds you planted will fruit yeah. in the future. And, you know, the faith of, uh, like Damien, you know, he started planting uh, trees and things at Kalapapa. Those poor people, you know, the government said, told the, those poor patients there, dying of Hansen's disease, to grow their own food. Wait a minute, they didn't even know if they were going to make it to next week. Mm. How do you expect them to plant something today that right. they don't even know they're going to be alive for? But then that's where faith, faith comes in. Yeah. I want to ask about this piece, Freedom, here, because you did mention it briefly in your answer. Can you share, whether in detail or vaguely, what inspired this? Because you mentioned something yeah. about. Well, I have I had a dear friend that I, um, she had some um, horrors in her childhood, serious abuses 
uh, from a stepfather from eight years old. And, uh, and I've watched her even as an adult. When I had met her, you know, very little was ever mentioned about it in the family. And, uh, but then she started doing some counseling around it. But, and I would even go. And I realized the depth of hurt that leaves and mm -hmm. anger, so and rightfully so. Um, that's why it's such a horrible offense. Um, and then also, you know, I started doing my own work and pulling up those. We all know um, tragedy on one level or another and realizing that the effects it had had on even myself. I always used it positively, but I can see how it could really damage, um, permanently damage someone's life. But I wanted to do a sculpture. Um, it, it is of her, but it is dedicated to all women brave enough to walk through the fire of healing, because it is a fire. And you can't blame anybody for not walking through that fire and burying it, because mm -hmm. it is the scariest thing in the world to, to dig up your deepest hurts. Um, I don't blame a lot of people. I would encourage them to, because that other end, if you can just get and put it in its proper place, surrounded by love, and uh, and that's what it, even I did. Um, you know, you pull it all up, but then you surround it with your understanding and love, and put it over here, and uh, and honor it. Then uh, it won't direct your life. And so I wanted to do that piece uh, with the open hand and the veil representing the things in life that can keep us from love and joy and mm -hmm. happiness that we all deserve. And um, But at least her hand is open and it's starting to fall away. That's beautiful. Yeah. You also mentioned uh, the resurrection yeah. a little bit in your answer. Can you talk about what inspired you to do that piece well when um even go, uh, going to counseling with this friend of mine um that it was a husband and wife that dealt with and even wrote books about adults that were wounded as children okay. and um uh, the husband turned to me during a session, and said, you lost your dad when you were young, didn't you? And I told him, yeah. I said, how do you know that? He said, just from your mannerisms and some of your answers. And uh, and, uh, and he says, you know, there's there's some work we can, we can do. And so that started me on going myself and uh, digging up all of that. I, I feel like we are like plants, and it's smart at some point in our life, don't have to make a career out of it, but uproot ourselves, shake off those roots, examine them, and then plant ourselves in healthier soil mm. so we can grow to our potential. I know if I did not do that 20 years ago, I wouldn't be doing things at the level. It wouldn't have been cleared away. There would have been all these blocks um, and be able to do the things that I... So I started a sculpture that was going to be the male counterpart to freedom called surrender a male nude surrender surrender to all of that because i i had another friend years ago that had those um cards that you can pick a card and it has a word for you mm. surrender would come up all the time i don't care how much she tried to bury that card 
I pulled that thing up. And boy, did I have a lot of shit to surrender. And so uh, I started the sculpture, and I would work on it while I was doing my, after my sessions or here and there. For I had it for a number of years. Mm -hmm. And then Archbishop Gomez came to my house for dinner, like I mentioned, and, and uh, he saw all my works, and he knew I had done works for churches and this and that. And he says, have you ever done the resurrection? And I said, no, I haven't. And he says, well, you might want to think about it. And how ironic was that? Because I go into my room after everybody left that night, and uh, I looked at surrender. I was like, oh, my God, literally change the face, put a loincloth on. That is Christ rising above the pain and suffering of the world. Mm. And so I did those changes, and uh, that's how it all came about. Wow. Yeah. We started to talk about Father Damien a little bit. Can you share with our listeners who Father Damien was mm -hmm. and why he played such a significant role in your art? Hmm. Well, <clears throat> there were so many things I could relate to in him. You know, he was formed by his upbringing in childhood and a farm boy. And, uh, you know, that farmer stock you learn hard work mm -hmm. um, and you have a certain ethics and uh, you know, and then Damien had us, you know, he had a sister that was a nurse and she died in a typhus epidemic in England. And she was a, as a nurse and he loved his sister, looked up to her and he, uh, and he had an older brother named Pamphile that was a priest, became a priest, but he was more an academic he was really not one for the field, to do the field work. He was a scholar. Okay. Damien was not a scholar. That's another thing I could relate to with Damien. He struggled with Latin so, so much uh, that he didn't, he really wanted to be a doctor to help people. And he felt that would honor his sister that had died. Yes. And, uh, but he knew he didn't have the smarts to become a doctor. So he took the name Damien in Honolulu when he was ordained in Honolulu because of St. Damien before him, the physician. Mm. And uh, not a lot of people know that, that part. So he, when he went to Big Island for 10 years, he ended up uh, befriending a Protestant doctor. Um, that's one of the things about Damien. He didn't care what. Uh, religious order you were or if you were of none you know he still cared about yeah. uh, but he this doctor friend of his brought him out in the field and showed him how to take care of people that were getting all these diseases entering the islands and uh, and he had a very strong uh, dedication his faith which was gained by the church, but also his experiences, too, and his losses in life uh, made um, him a very deep person, um, but so dedicated to go and help these. Uh, I really, um, it was Mother Teresa that that solicited Damien becoming a, a saint, saint um, Pope John Paul. And uh, because that's who she would pray to Damien uh, for strength, because she was taking care of people with Hansen's disease also. And then I loved that connection with my cousin Al, because, my gosh, 
he was a savior in my life too to have that solid uh, good man yeah. that count on right there yeah uh, there were no you know there were no unhealthy egos and all that yeah stuff so i i uh, read his letters and uh just to see how he had led his life he found his calling like uh, and you know i feel i have found my calling and uh without a doubt and i guess that's one of the things you can always hope for for your loved ones mm. is find their passion find their calling in life no matter what it is even being kind is an incredible gift yeah in this world it doesn't have to be something so visual and so uh it was such an honor to do damien on every single level uh to honor his life and uh and I, I liked that he was kind of like my cousin Al, was a very liberal priest. Pope Benedict shut down that college in Belgium because he said the priests coming out of there were too liberal. But under Pope Francis, it has reopened. I, I remember uh, in 2015, the government of Belgium, the consulate in New York, called and uh, they heard I had done a, the sculptures of Damien. Damien was the most famous Belgian in history. They got together with the city of New York to name a street in lower Manhattan after Damien because there's a church of Sacred Hearts on the street and there's a hospital that still treats Hanson's patients mm. on 3rd Street, I think it is, 3rd and something. And I and they bought six of my bronzes to give to the dignitaries, the Prime Minister of Belgium, Cardinal Dolan, the mayor, there was a senator from Hawaii. To, and so I got to have dinner at the Metropolitan Club with, with the Prime Minister and Cardinal Dolan, and uh, and he was uh, Prime Minister was talking how they are um, not just reopening that college and seminary, but they're renovating it mm. also, yeah. and uh, so maybe in the future there'll be a bronze statue there. <laughs> what is the feeling going to the places where Father Damien? worked it's um you know to walk that hallowed ground sacred ground there because it is so isolated but it is it so is, yeah. beautiful for our <sighs> listeners who don't know about what happened on in the hawaiian islands with what we now know is called it, what we now call hansen's disease but was called leprosy then mm. Can you give a little bit of, of well? It started entering the islands uh, like in the 1840s, and then the 1850s they they started. Uh, they had to. We now understand better it now because we've dealt with COVID for the last three years and how you want to isolate. Um, but there's this little four and a half square mile tongue of land that juts out from a 2,000 foot cliff on Molokai. So it's isolated as isolated could be. People, they form these uh, police groups to scour for anybody that has that disease. So men, women, and children, when they were discovered with that disease, they were taken from their families and shipped to Kalapapa. And um, and they could never leave. And like I said, the government wanted them to grow their own food. 
and, and it's, take it's care a of themselves. Very desolate peninsula. Yeah, yeah. They didn't have any water. They had to hike to get water up into the valley. And uh, so when Damien arrived there, there had been a Mormon outpost at one time and others before him, but it was so primitive. And um, Damien was the first one to really start organizing and cleaning it up and then uh, getting the water system. So they didn't have to take pails because these poor people were dying. Uh, so when Damien arrived there, he was, um, most people are scared to death uh, from what they end up seeing. Over 600 sick and dying people in all these stages of decay. And thankfully, there are people like Damien. We can't all be Damien. But there are there is a certain kind of person that can handle that mm. and say, "Wow, this is my calling." Yeah. And Damien did that. He uh, he wrote a letter to his bishop. He wanted to stay, and uh, he wrote a letter in his, one of his letters to his brother how he realized why he became a priest. He realized his purpose in life was to take care of these people to the end. And I also really loved Damien because of how. Uh, he dealt with so much politics in the church. Mm. You know, there there was this one priest in Honolulu that was so envious of him and tried to foil his every effort, didn't want to give him anything. Um, I didn't want to even give him the supplies he needed to take care of these people. Downplayed his, what he was doing there. And, uh, there's a scene in Molokai, the story of Father Damien, which is a very good movie, everybody should watch, that he's begging for priests to his bishop. And this one priest over here says, Damien, you know, you're so exasperating. Mm -hmm. Oh, maybe you would like to come down and help. And this, that priest just cowered, cowered in. Uh -huh. um, right after Damien's death, um, Robert Louis Stevenson, um, he was Protestant. And right after Damien's death, a few weeks after, um, there was a priest in Oregon that wrote the head of the Pre Protestant church in Honolulu, Reverend Hyde asking him about this Father Damien, this guy. And so the head of the Protestant church that lived in a mansion on Baratania Street wrote all this innuendo saying Damien got it from immoral sex with the leper women and this and that awful things that were just not true. And this letter ended up getting published in a Protestant newspaper. Robert Louis Stevenson was on his boat in the South Pacific, got, somehow got the paper, and was so enraged because he had gone through the islands and and uh, heard a few of the stories of Damien. So he came right to Hawaii, went down to Kalopapa, and talked to everybody there, the ones that didn't like him and the ones that loved him, and everything in between, and wrote an open letter to Reverend Hyde mm. that uh, 
and it was so incredible because he began it saying, a hundred years from now when Damien is to be sainted, the church will appoint a devil's advocate and the devil's advocate will use your letter and the advocate will use mine. And that's what happened. That's when literature and the word had power, could actually vindicate somebody mm-hmm. nowadays there's so much misinformation that you don't even know where truth is. But I mean, if you sit back and look at things, you can decipher a little bit. Mm-hmm. But most people are blinded by their one news station. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's one of the one of the many, but one of the powerful things about your sculptures is, I mean, we just talked about three different pieces that have such important stories. Mm-hmm from freedom to resurrection to Father Damien that evoke such strong emotions when you see them and then also pull you in to learn more about what's behind it Mm -hmm. and to really have a conversation about it. And especially with Father Damien is it opens up a whole other world of a, of a history in a very real time that a lot of people don't know about. Yeah. And how devastating it was to families here in Hawaii. I think one of the biggest problems with humanity in general is most people don't have the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Mm -hmm. I know it's hard to do, but you can kind of do that. I've always had the ability. I've always felt. And I don't know if I got that from my grandmother, but I could put myself in someone else's shoes. I also could put myself in other, someone else's shoes and s- to try and figure out why they did what they did. And I still don't understand it. <laughs> but also to understand people um, and what they go through, no matter what color mm-hmm. they are. It's, uh, you know, there's always a human being in there. You know, that's one of the things, you know, the, with that awful disease, they were so disfigured. But there's a human being behind those eyes. Yeah. Now, there's a soul there. Damien saw that soul. Your work is not just religious, and it's um, it, it, and it doesn't just focus on humanity either. Um, you also bring a lot of nature into your pieces, and you bring a lot of Hawaiian culture into your pieces. Mm-hmm. So I want to start with that Hawaiian culture piece a little bit and ask you what living here and learning about Hawaiian culture, how that has changed you, if it has changed you. Um, and then if you can just kind of tell us a little bit about how you've pulled it into your work. Well, it, uh, it's an interesting history of Hawaii. Um, when I first moved here, I worked at Intercontinental Hotel, and my manager was a historian. So right off the bat, I started getting... Uh, Um, bits and pieces of history but also when I worked myself up to the head waiter he would put all the important kupuna Mm. the kupuna into my section all the kumus and the Hawaiian leaders and the Hawaiian uh, activists all and everything in between uh, and kahunas too but I learned to listen and one of the great things about being in Hawaii here. They don't, people don't care what you have or what you say. They're going to observe you over time of what you do. 
I've always said I'd probably be better off deaf and not hear what people say. Just be able to watch what they do and their actions because it truly does speak louder than words. And uh, like a lot of native people, they were observers. They observed nature. That's how they learned. Um, they didn't even have a written language. And um, I remember I did this piece. It was like a, an ali'i, a chief, raising his cloak like on a cliff. Mm-hmm. And this historian um, manager of mine, Bill Boyd, when he saw it, he said, he chastised me. He said, an elite would never treat his cloak like, cloak like that. And I felt, oh my gosh, I stepped territory that I should not have stepped in. And uh, I really felt bad. I put that piece in the corner, sat there. And then I, a few years later, I had this uh, wonderful collector's day of mine brought over this kahuna. And and Al said he looked at that piece and he said and he told me this long Hawaiian name that was the chief long name of Kahakaloa. He would that big rock out at Kahakaloa. He would climb that rock and climb to the top and he'd raise his cloak and he could fly into the village. Mm -hmm. It's a story. Yeah. And so I I remember seeing Bill. And I told him that, and he apologized to me. He said, I'm so sorry, I never knew of that story. And so even he learned something, one of my elders that chastised me for something that he didn't. Um, But I I could appreciate it, though. Um, But I was glad to. And I also realized, um, and I talked this story over with Herb Kane, who is one of Hawaii's greatest um, historians and painters and sculptors. He designed the Hokulea. He started the Voyaging Society in Hawaii. And, and uh, about that vision. And he says, Dale, we get these visions. It isn't even for us to totally understand in a lot of cases. So if anybody is going to criticize anything you do, tell them to take it up with our maker. Because those visions come from somewhere else. It's not like we are creating them it's it's if you are true you know if it you're creating and true to your art it's going to come through you and the intention behind it always ends up revealing itself one way or another like you were saying watching what people do versus what they say because their Mm -hmm. actions will eventually either prove out what yes. you thought or betray what their intention was behind. Yes. And it was a, one of the most wonderful moments was uh, the healer sculpture at the King Kamehameha. And I know I told you this story, but I'll tell it for your listeners. Yeah, do. Um, well, number one, I was able to only have one guest with me at this at the grand opening. And all the dignitaries were there. And, and my stepfather decided to come and visit me for the very first time after 20-something years. And, uh, and so I took him to it. And he was standing next to me. And, uh, and Mrs. Kavena Johnson was next to me on the other side. And she was the most revered historian. She translated the Kumulipo. She um, the most respected Kumu in the islands 
and she was looking at the healer and she said, isn't this beautiful? And I turned to her and I, I said, thank you. And she turned to me and said, you did this, son? You're not Hawaiian. And then she looked at it for, and gazed at it for a few moments, then turned to me, put her arm around me and said, son, you are Hawaiian in another life. Mm. And uh, I do believe in, I don't think this is just it. Right. And so maybe it was, and that's why, be careful what you do in this life. Because that next one, there could be a lot of karma coming to you. I remember this very prejudiced person I grew up with. I said to him, hey, be careful, because you may be born very poor and of color in your next life. And you'll find out mm -hmm. the advantages you've had in this life. How long does it take you to do a four to five foot piece? Is it, do you get the vision and just do it yeah. or, okay. Well, if I am to do a piece start to finish, you know, it goes relatively quickly if you're diligent. Um, but I don't keep track of time. My, my stepfather was a very strict businessman and you know, it was one of the things, keep track of your time, keep track of your time. How do you do that? I gotta stop and keep track of my time? That it's, because a lot of it's contemplation. What am mm -hmm. I going to keep track of the time I'm actually taking, making wood chips? Um, and you lose track of time. That's a funny thing with me. I, I admire those people that, oh, uh, they can say, oh, uh, January 13th, uh, 1972, I did this. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Um, I love it when I can pick up, like, uh, I'll go to the beach and the washed up coral, I'll see a goddess face in there and I'll come back and I love it when it can take a couple hours to mm -hmm. finish a piece. Yeah. Um, a lot of times when I'm working on a giant piece like that, I've got to do small pieces so I have a sense of completion because uh, else it could be overwhelming. Sure. Yeah. What piece in your collection whether it's sold or still here has taken you the most time actually that mermaid right there uh three years and 11 months it took um, wow. i worked on it it was very complicated maybe it's going to be the next piece which is the migration the next giant piece the migration uh, of the mm. humpbacks uh, i can't wait who knows? to see that yeah but when I, I do try and prioritize and work on things I have to work on. Mm. Um, like I'm working on a few turtles because I had sold a number of turtles and I always love working on turtles because many, many years ago, when, after I did my first turtle, it was probably 35 years ago, I had a friend uh, that uh, took a picture of it. He was a photographer, Michael Gilbert. And he said, Dale, you know, I, I visited these ancient fish ponds on the Big Island, and these people bring in hurt turtles into these ponds. And, uh, and back then, you were hard-pressed to find a turtle. Mm -hmm. Now they're everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so I, he gave me their number. It was Peggy and Joe Forgus. Uh, they were from Alaska. She was originally from Texas, but they lived in Alaska. It's where they lived their lives. And uh, they had bought a property right on the ocean with two ancient fish ponds in the yard. And... Um, 
they utilized it as like a turtle sanctuary for hurt turtles. So whether they were attacked by shark, many different reasons they brought there. And so they gave me, he gave me their number. I called them. They invited me over there. And Peggy and Joe never had any children. And they were way up in their years. They were never going to have any children. And they, uh, and Peggy, would t as she would tell the story, when she opened that door, it was love at first sight, and they, like, adopted me. And, uh, and they even renovated the bottom of the house. The pond wrapped around the house. Mm, they renovated the bottom for me. And uh, it would give me books of tickets, because then you could buy the books on Hawaiian and Aloha Air. And uh, they really would have loved me move there, but it was so remote mm. that I would just go there for long weekends all the time. And they put me in charge of taking care, keeping the ponds clean, keeping the turtles clean, and taking care of those turtles. And uh, it, it was a piece of heaven. It, it was so difficult to explain how unbelievable it was. Because here's these saltwater ponds, the tide comes through the rocks. Mm -hmm. So it goes up and down. But then there's two freshwater springs heated thermally from the volcano that keep it like 90 degrees all wow. the time. With schools of fish in this crystal clear water, there was a canal that connected to two ponds. And I remember there was an eel was started living in the canal because schools of fish would go by. And he had his pick every day. And this thing got so big that this marine biologist asked Peggy, hey, can I cut through the yard to go to the ocean? I'm a marine biologist. She said, sure. You can come cut through this yard anytime you want, especially if you take that eel out of my canal. And so he caught the eel. And he got on the scale. It was 35 pounds. Oh, my goodness. Um, but I remember... I felt like I felt so fortunate to have been taking care of this this place. Full moon night, slipping in that pond with the turtles. They'd come mm. right up to me. I could feed them, and uh, it, it was it was. Uh, I remember uh, a guy named Chris Johns. He was went through the island, spent six months here doing a Birds of Hawaii shoot for National Geographic. He even wrote the article. And he heard about the ponds that I had and the turtles. So he got my number from somebody and called and said, hey, can I come and visit? You know, I just finished this article. And I said, sure. And so he spent three days with me there at the house. And he went underwater, above water. He photographed it, video, everything. And he was amazed by it. Here is a guy that traveled the world. I remember uh, he did a piece for Jean-Michel Cousteau because uh, Jacques Cousteau used to come every year show his latest film through mm -hmm. the Coast Gallery, and I was with the Coast Gallery at the time. And so I did a sculpture, and, and uh, Jean-Michel said, hey, I have my film crew coming through the islands. We just did a great white uh, um, program in Australia. He said, can we come and film there, film this? And so they came for three days and filmed. And my mom happened to be visiting when Jean-Michel Cousteau came and his whole crew. I mean, they put on their silver suits and everything with their wow. giant cameras. Yeah. They still used all those things. I remember my mom would only let me stay up late to watch Jacques Cousteau. Uh -huh. so I had, at 9 o'clock was my bedtime. But I was able to stay up late to watch those. And they were even amazed by this. That's how special 
it was. When we lost Kapoho four years ago in the last, that big eruption, mm -hmm. I was seeing aerial shots and I saw the house in this one area and I saw how it turned and it was heading right for it. That next day, sure enough, they did another aerial shot. The house, the ponds were gone. And now you have to walk, my gosh, at least almost a half mile to get to the ocean. And it used to be right on the ocean. Not many people realize how much lava pumped out of that fissure. Right. They say a four-lane highway east coast to west coast could have been paved. Wow. It's astonishing. It really is. Yeah. Just that creation, too, of new land. Yeah. Acres and acres wow. and acres. But it is a lesson. It was sad to see it go. But it's that's nothing lasts forever. Mm -hmm. Appreciate that time. What advice would you give to young artists that are looking at making a career and making a life from their art? Well, I've met you know quite a number of artists have come through the years for advice, and I can just tell them from my own experience. I tell them. Don't put all the pressure on your art to make your living. And one great way to do that is wait tables or work in the food industry. Because you're not going to start. You're going to learn to talk with people. And you learn to serve. Because you will be a slave to your art. Learn to serve others. And do it well. There is an art to service, as you know. You don't get it much out there anymore. Just mm -hmm. turn and burn. But, you know, giving an experience to people. Um, and learn to talk with people because uh, you're going to need to tell your stories. Your and develop your skills. Develop your skills to a point where you can... It's natural. You don't, you're not thinking... Your visions are coming and they're, you're just making it happen. At the end of the day, you're like, oh, wow, where did that come from? And uh, it's like that in any creative endeavor, whether it's writing or music, sculpting, cooking. Mm -hmm. um, and also learn to live from your heart because it is the living from the heart that creates the real magic in mm -hmm. something. You can do really nice things from your ego and mind, but the mind has a tendency to fuck everything up, and the ego. Um, you know, just seeing the flower beds and the cooking, the pies and the different things my grandmother made, it was all the love she put into it. You know, her children didn't get that. None of them can make a pie like my grandmother. Yeah. It was the love. And it's simple as that. There is something that changes the molecular whatever. Um, and the same thing in a, a piece of art. You know, put your, your love and your heart into it. It may be joy and pain or whatever it is, but it has to be true from your heart. And uh, then you can count on magic, but you got to develop your skills. That uh, viol that um, cellist uh, George Faust, 
for the Berlin Philharmonic at dinner um, one night. He he mentioned that he says, you know, your work is like mine. Our job was to develop our skills to such a point that it's natural. We get an inspiration. He said, my best pieces of music aren't in that recording studio when I'm all prepared. It's when I have an inspiration, pick up that instrument and play. Mm. I can do great in the studio or up on stage, but it's there's something pure about that, the inspiration. And it's not in the head. And always consider yourself an amateur. Because the word amateur is a derivative of the word that comes from amore, for the love. Amateur. Amore. If you could sit down and have a conversation with anyone, like we did today, who would you love to sit down with? Well, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. So did I. I always enjoy our conversations. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> wow. My dad. Mm. Because he was sick for a year and a half, and I was six when he had passed. I would love to sit down. Because some things I've heard about him, he was innovative. He was uh, passionate about being uh, farming. He carved his gun stocks. He had a race car that he would race at the local track that my grandfather frowned upon. Mm. Um, but I, I, I would love to sit. I've had... A few dreams over the years. Be able to talk to him. Mm. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out and and sharing your art and your stories and your inspiration with our listeners. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for being a listener of Conversation Mill. The podcast is growing but we need your continued support in the form of comments, likes, and subscriptions. If you've enjoyed even one episode, please take two minutes to comment under the episode or the podcast itself, or rate the podcast. Hitting the subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast helps tremendously. Every like and subscribe helps me support local businesses and local nonprofits by giving them a platform to tell their stories. Together, we can foster the understanding, diversity, and economies that make our individual communities flourish, while creating our own community here at Conversation Mill. Also, you can join us at conversationmill.substack.com, where you can become a member and receive weekly member-only content, including member-only episodes. I look forward to sharing a new conversation with you next week, and as always, thank you for your support.